if you have your Bible, then I would invite you to turn to John chapter 1. The scripture was read already, but I want to read it again to refresh ourselves of what we have heard. John chapter 1, I'll begin by reading from verse 1. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, let me begin by talking about a possibly an extremely controversial topic, a topic that could potentially rile up two tribes, a topic that I pray and hope that I pray and hope won't get any of you into quarreling after the service, during the fellowship and refreshment time. Please don't fire me after the sermon, okay? Just because we just passed the budget. I'm talking about the Oxford comma. Now, the Oxford comma is perhaps the most controversial top piece of punctuation in the English language. Now, if you're not familiar with this debate, let me just give you an example. Uh, let's just say I write this sentence, I love eating sushi, salmon, and tuna. Now, a punctuation would be at the very last part of, like after the salmon part. Usually, people who are for the Oxford comma, they will add the comma there. But if you're not for the Oxford comma, then you will just not have it. Uh, see, there's, there are conflicting guidelines governing whether or not the extra comma at the end of a list should be used, uh, depending on which authority you, you consult. Uh, those who say no to the Oxford comma say, that comma is not necessary. Uh, but those who support the comma ar argues that it serves to clarify in instances whether two items are meant to belong together or not. Now, this Oxford comma is so controversial to the point that there was a story that was done like five years ago. Uh, it was so controversial that to a point that a dairy company paid its employees about $5 million dollars all because there was an absent Oxford comma. Five million dollars, that's how you earn money these days. You see, what's amazing is that, what kind, that, that this kind of confusion can cause just by one missing punctuation mark. And, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we live in a world that is rather ambiguous and rather confusing. Uh, fortunately, by the grace of God, we as Christians, we have the Bible. And while there are some things that are hard to understand, there are major doctrines that are abundantly clear when it comes to, for example, to the identity of Jesus Christ. You see, one of the most important questions you have to answer is this, who is Jesus Christ? Thankfully, we don't have to guess the answer. We have an eyewitness named John who has spent three years with Jesus. And he wrote this gospel to answer that question. And as you read through John's gospel, 
the identity of Jesus should be clear. You see, last Sunday we began our study in the Gospel of John, and we are at the beginning of what is called the prologue of John's Gospel. And that the prologue essentially presents an overview and highlighting the main themes that the entire Gospel of John will cover. You see, last Sunday we have learned about Jesus being the eternal Word. We have learned about the eternal pre-existence of the Word, uh, the eternal coexistence of the Word, and the eternal uh, self-existence of the Word. And as we continue in John's prologue, we learn about we learn about who this eternal word is, who this Jesus is, and who this God is. And so let's jump right into the exposition of God's word. And, that, and John will answer the question of who Jesus is. He is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things. See, verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See, John introduced to us Jesus, the eternal word, who was from the beginning with God. And it would make sense for him to logically connect the word, the eternal word, to to the creation of the universe. And I want to spend a little time, a little bit of time breaking this down. And I want you to see how significant this text is. And I want you to see, I want you to see what you cannot see in the English translation. You see, in the ESV, it translates the Greek verb into were made so all things were made Uh, i would prefer this translation from the nasb the new american standard bible rather than than esv where it says all things came into being or came into existence and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being now why am i making this point well being made directly talks about God creating all things without directly implying or inferring uh, what the Greek meant, which is making things come into existence. And if translated as came into being or came into existence, it implies or infers that something didn't or wasn't existing before. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where God created the world. See, the context of Genesis chapter 1 is when God created the world in six literal days and rested on the seventh day. And when God created the heavens and the earth, there was a specific Hebrew word that was used for the word created, which is bara in Hebrew. And this Hebrew word can carry a sense of creating something into existence out of non-existence. Theologians have called this the, the ex nihilo, which in Latin means out of nothing. And so this word bara is only attributed to God, and you will never find in the Old Testament that humans ever bara or created things. God is the only one who can create things out of nothing. See, humans can create many things. We are, we're able to create things out of something from creation. You see, we are dependent upon the natural resources that God has uh, blessed us with here in creation. And, and for the past 50 years or so, it seems like technology has advanced quite a bit 
is, hasn't it? Uh, for example, we have cell phones or smartphones, or, or maybe a few of you like to call it the dumb phones. Uh, even though Steve Jobs has invented and innovated something like the iPhone that really rocked the world of technology back then during that time, he still, like all of us, cannot create things out of nothing. He cannot just make the iPhone pop out of nowhere. God, however, is independent of anything. He doesn't need natural resources or anything in creation to create the universe into existence. God created things. He created the universe into existence out of nothing. He can, though, choose to use creation as means to create things, such as Adam and Eve. God did use the dust of the ground to form Adam, and God did use Adam's rib to create Eve. But ultimately, the sovereign power of God can create, can create anything, however way he chooses to accomplish his purpose. Moreover, as you look at this text, when God created the world into existence, John here doesn't say that God created some things. He doesn't say God created one thing. He doesn't say God created most things. How many things did God create? What does it say here? John says, all things. This would include animate objects that we can possibly see and observe, such as our natural world, uh, the galaxies, uh, the depth of the ocean, uh, even microorganisms, and so much more. And this will also include the inanimate objects that we cannot see physically, such as the spiritual realm, like, or angelic beings, and so forth. And it was through him, through the eternal word, that all things were made. In other words, the creation of the universe was not solely the work of the Father, but it was also the work of the Son. It was through God the Son that God the Father created the world. There's a lot of work that was done regarding the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, and how the Trinity was involved in creation. You see, God spoke the universe into existence through the eternal word, and that Christ, the word, was the agent who caused all things to exist. And, and that's what happened in Genesis chapter 1, right? God spoke, let there be this, and let there be that, and what happened? It happened. There was creation. He spoke words into existence. If you are a deep thinker, I have always wondered, have you ever pondered this question? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why do I exist instead of not existing? Why is this universe that we're living in, in this galaxy, in this cosmic universe, why do everything exist instead of nothing? See, the Apostle Paul expounds this, expounds a deeper truth in here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, about the purpose of creation and why there is something rather than nothing. Paul says, for by him all things were created, that is Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And to illustrate what Paul is saying here, just imagine a carpenter working and designing a wooden chair with, with care and precision. Uh, he doesn't just envision that this piece of furniture would just be put on display or used for display, but he, it would serve a purpose in providing a seat of comfort. And after creating the chair, he should feel a sense of accomplishment and ownership of that wooden chair. You see, some of you, maybe this morning, may not even know what your purpose in life is. You don't even know why you're born in the first place. But may I suggest to you that it's because you need to know your Creator. He created you with a purpose. And here Paul says that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. See, you and I and all creation and, and all creatures, we were created for Jesus. That's our purpose. We were created for his glory. We were created to worship him. We were created to praise him, to enjoy him, and to live for him because Jesus is our creator. And hence, John says, and without him, that is without the word, was not anything that was made. See, without Jesus, nothing in this world would ever come into existence. But since Jesus has always existed for eternity, all things exist for a purpose. Now, let me add one more thought for you regarding, to, to consider regarding the, the wooden chair. The fact that the wooden chair exists means that there is someone who designed and created it. It didn't just drop out of the blue, did it? Similarly, creation, you and I included, reveals something about God. What has God revealed to us about himself in creation? See, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You see, creation, uh, this world that we're living in, this universe that we're living in, is sufficient to reveal to us the existence of God and the power of God. And yet, it is also sufficient to condemn all for their failure to bow down and worship the creator, God. And so here's what, G what John is saying here in this passage regarding the eternal word. The one in whom I want you to believe in is the one who created you in the first place. And if you remember, John's purpose in writing this gospel is so that you may believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Perhaps some of you may have doubts about the existence of God and the biblical worldview on creation. And while I cannot address all the doubts that you may have, perhaps we can do it after the service. But, what if, what, but if what the scripture says is true about God as the creator of his creation, then I would encourage you to, to have faith. To have faith. See, the author of Hebrews 
describe faith like this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And he goes on to say this in verse 3, regarding the creation of the world. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. They say even though the object of our faith, who is, who is God himself, is unseen, we have confidence that God exists and that he did create this world. Because as Christians, we have a good reason to believe in the existence of God. Because there is a rationale behind our beliefs. But most importantly, we are confident that what the Bible teaches us is indeed true. That it is indeed the revelation of God's word. And so it requires faith. Faith to believe that God created the universe by the word of God out of nothing because what God did in the beginning of Genesis was nothing short of a, of a miracle. We all exist because of a miracle. See, when God created the world in six days, it was meant to be good. And when he created Adam and Eve, it was very good. Remember that story, right? And things in God's creation was good and perfect, but not too long after you read the Bible story in Genesis chapter 3, you would learn about the fall of creation. You see, Satan tempted Eve in the garden by eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam also took the fruit as well. And afterwards, sin entered into the world and corrupted all things, humanity and creation. And hence, this world that we're living in has all sorts of problems. You know, we experience sickness and diseases and illnesses. It was due to the fall. What's worse is that our human nature is corrupted by sin. We are depraved in our being. And so our present world is radically different from God's good creation. But the good news is this, so that the story did not end in Genesis chapter 3. While the word is the creator and the agent of creation, John tells us that he, Jesus, the word, is the giver of all life, and he's the bringer of light to all people. That's the good news. That's a hope. John says in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, just as the creation account in Genesis 1 highlights the theme of light and life, so light and life are important themes for John. See, life is mentioned 36 times in this gospel, and light is used 23 times. And John is saying that here, that life and light, they are inseparable, they're distinct but inseparable because both communicate the idea of salvation. But I want us to focus on the word life. Now, if you don't know the word life, the Greek word means zoe. So if your name is called zoe or zoe, that's what your, that's what your name means. It means life. And, and Jesus uses the word life in three of his I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. 
I am the way and the truth and the life. It's a significant word for the Apostle Paul. And also in Jesus' teaching. So if, that, if it's important for them, then it had to be important for, to us too, right? It is significant because Jesus has life in himself. John says, in him was life. But what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that the word is the source of life. He embodies the life. He has always and eternally had life in himself. And that there was never a point in time when the eternal word, Jesus, had no life in himself. Because he never died. Nor did he cease to exist. He always had life in himself. And so since the eternal word is life to it in himself, and since he is the source of life, he is also the giver of life. The Lord Jesus Christ gave life to all living things in the world, and God breathed life, physical life, into Adam. What's also miraculous is that Jesus Christ had the, has the power and the authority to call the dead to life by his powerful word of life. So I encourage you to think about your own life. The reason why you have life is because it comes from God. If you know the story of King Hezekiah in the Old Testament, he became ill, and God told him that he would die. But Hezekiah prayed to the Lord that, he would ex- that God would extend his life. And by God's grace, what happened? God extended Hezekiah's life for another 15 years. You see, just as God has given you physical life, he can also easily remove it whenever he wills. See, there's no guarantee that you'll have tomorrow to live. Our life here on earth is fragile, and it can be taken away immediately. So brothers and sisters, be grateful. Be grateful to the Lord that you have another day to live, and give him the glory that he deserves. And the most tragic thing is not just people losing their physical life, but also losing their spiritual life, being away from God for eternity, and experiencing his judgment. The good news is that Jesus is more than just a giver of physical life. He is both the giver of physical life and eternal life. John says in his letter that he is the true God, that he is the eternal life, and that whoever believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has eternal life, and that whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, I believe Christianity does not just teach us good morality and how to live. I believe Christianity also teaches us the origin of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, and our destiny after this life, and it all comes back to Jesus. And when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the the one who embodies the very life that you need, you'll discover that your life will be abundant, as he promised in John chapter 10, verse 10. And you'll also learn that this source of life is also the light of men. He is the bringer of life to all people, See, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
See, God's nature is light. And this light is a metaphor for the glory of God that shines in the darkness. It represents God's perfect holiness, his perfect purity, his perfect knowledge. And because the eternal word is the light of men, there is absolutely no darkness in him. And furthermore, John tells us what this light will do, that he is the invader of all darkness, and that he is the conqueror of all darkness. John says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, light is meant to dispel darkness. I'm sure you already realized that when you turn on, this, turn on the light this morning. See, in Genesis chapter 1, God separated light from darkness. And here in John's gospel, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world shines or even exposes the works of darkness. You see, for John, when you read his writings, this gospel and his letters, Darkness is a category that includes everything that is at enmity with God. Darkness is not merely an absence of light, but it represents evil. And here's what you need to know about darkness. It has not failed to understand the truth about Jesus. Quite the contrary. The forces of darkness knows Jesus all too well. You think about the demons. They believe in God, but they shudder. When demons have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, they were terrified and they said, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You see, the, dark, see, the darkness hates the light. And what's worse is that the darkness sought to destroy the light. And throughout biblical history, you learn that the evil one has always attempted to extinguish the light. It sought to cut the kingly line of David that will eventually bring about the Messiah. And over and over again, Satan and his followers have attempted to thwart the plan of God, but they have consistently failed. And when Jesus came into this world, darkness hates him. It hates the person and work of Jesus Christ. It hates the coming of Christ. It even hates the signs and miracles that he performed. It's the nature of the unregenerate and corrupt human heart to flee from the light and fight the light. And so many people to this day have done that. That's why John says here, John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light that does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You see, the good news is that the nature of light is to shine and eliminate and conquer darkness because the darkness has not overcome it. As long as there is light in the room, darkness cannot invade it. It cannot defeat the light. It cannot win. And even though darkness seems to have won at the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, it ultimately led to its defeat through the resurrection of Christ, bringing hope and salvation to all who would place their trust in him. 
See, the good news, my friends, is that light is ultimately victorious over the darkness. And the question you need to ask yourself is this. How would you respond to the light that has already come into the world? Well, you can respond in one of two ways. First, you can reject and resist the light and remain in darkness. However, if you do, there will be a darkness that will, that will be even worse than what you are enjoying and embracing because those who are in darkness love darkness, right? But there will be a darkness that will be even worse. See, Jesus talks about the folks who will be thrown and cast into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be gnashing of teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I pray and hope that you will not respond that way. Instead, you will respond in a second way, and that is you walk out of darkness and walk into the marvelous light, and that you turn away from sin, you turn away from darkness, and that you turn to God. However, you would not just be walking into the light. Paul says that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that, that God has said, let light shine out of darkness. And this word, let light shine out of darkness, Paul says, this light has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, when you walk into the light and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will experience, you will encounter the life-transforming glory of God. He will change your hearts. And Paul says that when you become a born-again Christian, God delivers you from the domain of darkness and transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, how would you respond to the light? And so in summary, John has covered who the eternal word is. He is the creator of all things. He is the giver of all things. He is the bringer of light to all people. He is the invader of all darkness. And he is the conqueror of all darkness. You see, during this Christmas season, we celebrate the eternal word, who is the creator, the life, and the light. And Isaiah prophesied about this Messiah. The people who walk in darkness has seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. See, this creator, God, chose to step down into human history and to be born of a virgin and to shine that light in this dark world. And that this eternal word is the maker of Mary, and yet he became Mary's son. God created a manger so that he can lie in it as a helpless babe. And furthermore, this eternal word was nailed on the cross that was ultimately prepared by him and for him for the redemption of his people. And we're about to go ahead and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And during this Lord's Supper, we get to remember once again, the birth of Christ is not the end, but a means in accomplishing his mission on earth, which is redemption through Jesus' shed blood on the cross.